0: I have discovered through the years that there are a lot of misconceptions about heaven. We have these ideas that form in our minds, maybe from stories we've heard or songs we've sung or just things that people have said to us. And, and so we, we have a lot of conflicting ideas about what heaven's going to be. I, I found a, a few cartoons this week that maybe will strike you as some things that you might have thought or other people have thought. (laughs) You know, when I was a child, heaven was the only thing I thought about about heaven were angels' wings and harps and you know and halos and as much as I you know have nothing against angels' wings or harps or halos it seemed kind of boring to me and I remember our youth pastor asking us what would you what would you like heaven to be if you could design it and my answer was a never ending baseball game and I had somebody earlier service say we're talking about heaven or hell. You know, we have these ideas in our minds of of what we think would make sense for heaven to be good and positive. And when we come to this vision of John's in revelation, he gives us glimpses throughout of of what heaven will be. And it's interesting to me as you read through this, this revelation, John uses the term, it looked like a number of times. Because it's the only way he can think of to process it with his own experience, what he's seeing. And it's hard to describe it. But when we come to this 22nd chapter, we we see that John describes the heavenly existence, as again, as a city. And we talked last week that the city was dressed as a bride for her groom. And the bride in the New Testament and even in the Old Testament is associated with God's people, the church. And so the city will be the church and we will understand heaven in the context of the church. And he says, in this city, there is down the middle of the street, of the main street of the city, this river that flows. The river that brings life. When I read that, my mind immediately jumps to the fourth chapter of John's gospel. Where Jesus is sitting by a well, talking to a woman. And he says to her, if you knew who, I, who you were talking to you would ask me for living water because I am the water of life. And you fast forward to Revelation 22 and you see this river of life coming through the city and that says to me that this river symbolizes Jesus. And everything about the city that has life, everything in the city that exists, everything that has meaning in the city is about Jesus. And ultimately, Heaven is heaven because of Jesus. Jesus, the lamb who was slain. He is the the reason there is heaven. And there are lots of theories we have about what heaven may be like. But if Christ isn't in the center of those theories, something is wrong with him. Over and over again, it's about Jesus. Jesus. And because it's about Jesus, the river of life who brings life into this, this place, the, the trees have life. And he talks about the tree of life being on either side of the river. And that takes us back to Genesis and the Garden of Eden. And the tree of life sits right in the middle of the garden. And before Adam and Eve sinned, they eat on that tree because the only tree they can't eat of is the tree of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil. But when they do that, when they sin and disobey God, they are banished from the garden so that they don't eat the tree of life. But now we come to this picture of the heavenly realm and the tree of life is there. And it is producing fruit at an amazing rate. Every month, a whole new crop of fruit. Because its root system is in Jesus, the river of life. And John says that the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. And after that, he says, there will be no curse. And when I think about the healing of the nations and no curse, I think about all the ways in which nations fight with each other. All the ways we think of to to turn on each other and to make war with each other and, and to fight with each other. And all of that's going to be gone. No more nation against nation. I find it interesting earlier on in the prophecy in chapter nine, chapter five, chapter seven. John says that I looked and I saw people from every tribe and language and, and nation and, and people group, which says to me that heaven is not about all of us being blandly the same. We will still have our uniqueness, and we may still even have our distinguishing characteristics of nationalities, but instead of fighting with each other, we will be unified. In Christ. And we will be one in Him as the people of God. And all the walls and the barriers that are between us now will be broken down. And we will love each other in a way that now is hard for our minds to comprehend. But that but but that healing of the nations and the ending of the curse is not just about stuff out there and the largeness of nation and nation, it's about us as well. It's about all of our relationships. Now that we're under the curse, we live with such insecurity. And, those, and that insecurity drives us to want to be better than other people and to, get, and to, be, to be more popular and to have more success. And, and we walk over people and we trample people and we take advantage of people and we, we wrestle with jealousy and, and we're envious. And it leads us to all kinds of things that we do to each other. But in that day... All of that will be gone. No more envy, no more jealousy, no more insecurity. We will just love each other. We'll love each other because we're different. And we'll love each other for the ways that we're the same. Because all of our focus, everything about our existence there will be on Jesus. It won't be about us. It'll be about him. And that will heal our relationships and, and no more will we live with the pain that we cause each other and the pain that we feel from each other. We'll be healed fully, completely. But ultimately, that healing is about us and God. Because what causes our problems with each other is rooted in our problem with God. Before the fall, Adam and Eve had this perfect relationship with God. They had perfect receptors to understand what God was saying and to see God and to trust God. But after the fall, our receptors are damaged. They're twisted and they're bent and they're torn and some are broken off and we just don't get it. God hasn't changed his message. God hasn't changed a thing about who he is and what he says to us. We now, because of our damaged receptors, just don't get it. And we question God and we and, and we don't trust God. And we are convinced that we know better than God does. And all the things that come to us in life, the pains and the struggles and the burdens, can cause us to question God and to trust in ourselves more than in Him. All because of those damaged receptors and the message of who he is, of his grace and his mercy and his compassion and his truth. It doesn't get through to us like it should. But on that day, our receptors will be totally healed. They'll be put back right. And we will experience God the way he intended us to we will see God perfectly and we'll understand God perfectly and we will trust Him perfectly because our focus will no longer be on us, it'll be on Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain and who was raised from the grave. It's hard to put into words all that that's going to be like. You know, I think John struggled to describe what he was seeing. And we struggle to visualize it as well because we live so far below that. And then you come to verse 4. And he says that, that the servants of God, those who worship the Lamb, those who serve the Lamb, those whose lives are focused fully on Christ, are going to see his face. go back to Exodus chapter 33 we read this passage a few moments ago God has brought the Israelites out of Egypt and uh, he now has uh, Moses is up on the mountain and he's meeting with God, he's getting the Ten Commandments and all the law and, and, and Moses is up there for 40 days and it's such an amazing experience that when he comes down he actually is glowing, he's physically glowing and, and I can't imagine what Moses saw and what he went through up there but when he comes down in chapter 32, is the whole debacle of the golden calf. The people say, I don't know what happened to this Moses. Let's make a calf, we'll worship it, and they do. This is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And you know, the place just disintegrates in the immorality and sin. And, and Moses comes down and he sees what's happening, he smashes the tablets, and, and there are consequences. And now we come to chapter 33, and Moses has to go back and get another set of tablets. Ten Commandments, 2.0. He's got to go up and he's got to get the second set. And and I think he, now he's up there and he's a little bit concerned about, about whether God is going to stick with them. I mean, this is a pretty big deal, what happened is with the golden calf. And and there, you get the sense that Moses is afraid that God is going to send the Israelites on, but he's, he's not going to be a part of this group anymore. Moses has yet to learn The amazing patience of God. And he says, Lord, if you don't go with us, then we don't want to go. And God says, I'll go with you. And Moses says, I'd like a sign. I want to make sure. Let me see your face. And I, I can almost hear God laughing saying, yeah, Moses, that's not going to happen. You could not handle seeing my face. You know, you look in someone's face, someone looks you in the eye, that's how you truly know them. There's a presence there in someone's face. And to look in the face of God, impossible. It's too much. And so God says, you stand over here and I'll walk by and you can see my back. And that's enough for Moses and they move on. And now we come to this heavenly vision in Revelation 22. And John says, those who worship the Lamb will see his face. We will now have the opportunity to look God in the eye and to understand more than ever in a completely new way who God is and God's love for us and his grace and mercy to us and we'll see him face to face and eye to eye and I can't imagine what that's going to be like. But it's because of Jesus. Jesus. And then he says, Not only will they see his face, but his name will be on their foreheads. I've been pondering what it means for God's name to be on the forehead of his servants. You go to Revelation 13, and the people who worship the beast, who follow the enemy of God, they put this, the sign of the beast on their foreheads. And so maybe he's saying, these are the people, those people, they chose the beast, and so they're marked with him. And these people have chosen God, and they're marked with him. And it might be that, but I think there's something else going on here. It struck me as I was reading again recently, Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory. And in that essay, he talks about this idea that you know we will experience glory in heaven, and he said, "I don't exactly know what that means. All I can think of with glory is is fame." And he said, I don't think that's—I didn't think that's what he meant. And then I read some of the ancient writers, and they thought that that was what he meant, but not fame from other creatures, but actually fame and recognition from God. That in that place. We are going to be recognized by God as important and special. He's going to write His name on our foreheads. He goes on to say it, it's sort of the, the same idea of it's the idea of, of pleasing someone who has authority over you, and doing it not to manipulate them, but just because you love to please them. A child to a parent, a pupil to a student. A creature to its creator. And, and he said, you think about a child. And he says, nothing more obvious in a child. Not a, he's not a conceited child, but a good child. There's, there's nothing in a child that's more noticeable than when they realize they have pleased their parent. They beam. They're filled with joy. This person that's so important to them has expressed pleasure for what they've done and who they are. And we know that feeling. Maybe it's not with a parent, maybe with someone else, but you know that feeling of someone you admire and respect and, and recognizing that you have pleased them. It, it fills you with great joy. And Lewis says, I think that's what is going to happen in heaven. That God is going to tell us, I'm pleased with you. You bring joy to me. He, Lewis says we, it's amazing, but we're actually a part of, of, God, of ex, God experiencing his divine happiness by who we are and our worship. And so it sounds a little bit trite to talk about being recognized by God. And yet he, he quotes Paul in 2 Corinthians when he says that to those who love Christ... It's not what we expect that they will know him, but rather that they will be known by him. And I think when he says that God's name is written on our foreheads, it's not so much that we are declaring we're on God's side as much as it is God saying, that's my people. And I am happy that they are my people. And I want you to know that I'm pleased to identify myself with them. Because they bring joy to me. It's like when I played Little League. You know, in, in Little League, different businesses sponsored our teams. And I played for Citizens National Bank. And that was blazoned across our uniforms. Citizens National Bank. And we represented them. But, and, and so the way we played and the way we behaved were a direct relation, connection to them. And I suspect that if if we kind of went off the rails and started doing crazy things, they would pull their sponsorship because they didn't want to be identified with that. And there are lots of times I think we feel about God because of the things we do or don't do or the way we live. We think God's ashamed of us. He's going to pull the sponsorship out from us. But the reality is despite our struggles and despite our sin and our failings that all of us have to deal with... God is pleased with us. If the desire of our heart is to worship Christ, if the desire of our heart is to bring joy to God, he is pleased with us, even when we fall short of bringing to him the joy he deserves and the pleasure he deserves. And the day is coming when that will be perfect. Perfect. The day is coming when we will give him perfect pleasure and perfect joy. But until that day, we get glimpses of that. And God says to us, I've loved you with an everlasting love. You're my children. And if you if you who are parents know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven who loves you and is pleased with you and, and, and is not ashamed of you. He simply wants us to want to bring Him joy. And that's why, you know, Lewis talks about heaven being for people who want to be there. Heaven's about people who want to bring joy to God. Heaven's about people who want their lives to be so focused on Christ. However much we fail in that, in that venture, but our, our Desire so focused on Christ that we bring joy to God, and nothing pleases us more than to bring joy to God. And if that's what heaven's going to be then in its perfect state, then that's what life we're being called to now in this world. And so, with that eternal mindset this table becomes a place where we hear God's invitation to know his love and his grace and his mercy on us now. This is a place where, where we hear God saying to us, you're valuable to me. You're important to me. You're my beloved child. You bring joy to me. This is a table where we join saints in the ages and around the world at the banquet table of love for our God who is merciful and grace and sovereign and true. When Jesus is the focus of heaven, everything makes sense. And when Jesus is the focus of heaven, he becomes the focus of our lives here. And they start to make sense. So this morning, if if your desire is to bring joy to God, then this morning, I want you to celebrate what God has promised. To celebrate God saying to you, you bring pleasure to me. I love you. You bring joy to me. And if your desire is is not to bring joy to God, if your desire, if you're so wrestling with that, what a great time to say, Lord, I want to change the way I've been living my life. I want to surrender to you. I want to be yours. In this moment of prayer, Hear God speaking to you and offer to him your prayers. Father, it is an awesome thing to to hear you say that we bring joy to you. That we bring pleasure to you. That your name written on our foreheads Is exactly what you want. Father, encourage us. Speak joy and blessing and grace into our lives. Hear our prayers of repentance, hear our songs of praise. We pray, Father, that your blessing will rest upon the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake. We pray, Father, that it will be food for our souls and that we will have a sense of joining in with your saints through the ages and around the world in this great banquet of love. Give us a glimpse of what you have promised for us. And we ask this through Christ. Amen.